0: Welcome to the Med Street Journal. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Med Street Journal podcast. I'm your host today, Rodney Hu. And today I'm joined by another very special guest, Mr. Tim Groninger. He's the CEO of Caravan Health. And I'm excited to have him on and give him an opportunity to share his story and what they're doing in the healthcare, more specifically the managed services vertical. So with that being said, Tim, welcome to the, the podcast. Thanks, Rodney. I'm excited to be here. No problem. So yeah, let's just jump into it. Why don't you give people a quick background on how you actually got into healthcare, a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Not to go back too far, but the short version of the story is I thought I wanted to be a doctor and a researcher, an MD, PhD, and I was on a track to do that in studying biochemistry. But I realized I was not caught out for bench work, lab work, and I was Burned out by the time I was a senior in college and started looking for other ways to contribute in healthcare and found my way into public policy actually and healthcare finance specifically where I worked generally on the problem of how we pay for medicine really drives the delivery of medicine. And we pay fee for service. We pay by, it's like paying a carpenter by the inch or a a plumber by the foot. You're going to get more stuff if you pay someone to do more. And working at at various jobs in Washington, including ultimately Congress, the White House and and CMS, the Medicare and Medicaid agency, worked on a, a variety of projects that tried to create new payment structures. that. Would reward and allow providers to invest in programs that will allow them to be paid for keeping patients healthier rather than just treating them when they're sick. And that's about managing the total cost of care. That's about managing the patient's experience of care and the quality of care that they receive. And that's what the Medicare ACO program, the Accountable Care Organizations programs are built around. And that's what I've spent my entire career working on that problem in various capacities, including now at Caravan Health.
0: Nice. Now you're at Caravan Health, still in the healthcare industry. Can you speak on who exactly do you guys help and who really benefits off of the services that you guys provide?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we are a technology and services company that's worked with over 300 health systems around the country, predominantly rural and safety net facilities in urban areas to help them stand up and operate value-based care programs. And you could call them population health management programs. And these are programs that are really built around taking care of their patients, whether or not they're in front of you for any particular illness on any particular day. So your patients with heart disease checking in on them and making sure that they have the medications that they need and that they've been filled and that they are being managed well at home. Or patients who are uh, discharged from a hospital – helping them transition back to the community and making sure that they don't have relapses of whatever led to their admission in the first place. And so we we bring tools and training and advice and a whole bunch of services to our clients in these relatively low resource uh, settings, rural areas or are very rural providers deal with a lot of shortages that, uh, that providers in urban areas would never contemplate having to deal with shortages of staff, shortages of tools and technology and patients difficulty in, in even getting there and so we've had to build our model in such a way that that providers in these in these environments are able to pick them up and they're able to pay for the work that they're doing they're able to generate revenues from it and they're able to keep track of it over time in a way that that makes sense
0: for them and for the patient okay so you guys really just focus on providing value to people that have low resources like you said that's how the loop started because they're out in Iowa and they the CEO, John Lensing, he noticed how a lot of people in the area, if they don't have direct access to care, then they have to drive like hours before they get to the next available resource. Makes sense on what you're saying. But as far as like you guys and your company and how you guys are being able to provide value, what is, other than having low amounts of resources, what is like a key problem that you see in the industry, key problem that you see your clients facing over and over?
1: Yeah, where to start right? There there are a lot of problems out there, but I'll just give you one example. In these contracts that that our providers take on with Medicare and other payers, they need to find ways to increase the amount of preventive care they provide, increase the amount of care management services they provide, and they need to document all of this more extensively than they have done before. They under these new contracts and these economic models that there are resources here to fund more staff. But they need to know how to deploy those staff efficiently. You can't just, we need to do more prevention. We need to do more visits where patients do a Medicare's version of an annual check-in. It's not a a check-in per se, but it's, you do a health risk assessment. You do, uh, you check in on a variety of, have you, are you up to date on your vaccinations? Are you up to date on your screenings for preventable diseases. And to do that, you can't just hire more doctors because it's really hard to hire doctors in in rural areas. It's relatively hard to hire nurses. So we help our clients dissect this work and figure out what combination of technology can support their staff, where they do need to add nurses or medical assistants to provide these extra services. And then we bring them data to the point of care that they're able to know when a patient needs a service or know when a a piece of documentation is missing based on vast claims data warehouses that they wouldn't have access to otherwise. And that allows them to simultaneously generate more revenue for their practice, organize their practice in a more efficient way, and achieve a number of the quality improvement and documentation requirements of, of the ACO, which can open up other revenue opportunities for them
0: downstream. Awesome. So you guys pretty much optimize their entire workflow from like the technology and tools aspect, but also the people, the staff, and make sure that everybody is working together and everything is like integrated seamlessly. And so I want to switch gears and give you an opportunity to talk about caravan health. Like we could talk a little bit about who you help with a little bit about how you do it, but can you explain a little bit about the process that people go through when they're inquiring about working with you and collaborating with you on projects?
1: Sure. So our clients are health systems and physician groups and health clinics, so healthcare providers. They have contracts with commercial payers, think like Blue Cross, Blue Shield. Uh, they have contracts essentially with Medicare and in many cases with their Medicaid programs in their states as well. So they're already in. They're providing care to patients that are paid for by those provider by those payers. In many cases, Medicare and those other payers have made available to a hospital or to a physician group the opportunity to join in a contract that is uh, organized around shared savings, we call it, or a a value-based contract. But the provider, because of the issues we just partially touched on, might not feel able to or be be particularly capable of taking on that project on their own. In the Medicare context, there is an opportunity to join one of these value-based deals every year. And so we're in continuous communication with providers all around the country about what they need to join a value-based care program, how it would work in their system. For us, there's a fairly extensive assessment and onboarding process where uh, we make sure that the system is ready for the cultural change required to succeed in these models because it's not something, it's not like it's just a software layer where you tack it onto your EMR and you're done. There, there's a lot of staff training involved. There's a lot of C-suite buy-in required. And it, so it, it's a process that where we ask the clients to invest a lot of their own time in this for, for the work to succeed. And so it's a multi-month, uh, sometimes multi-year process, but at the end of the day, it, it can produce dramatic changes and dramatic benefits for anyone who's participating in the program.
0: Huh. Okay. Man, you guys pretty much take a very holistic view to like their whole business operations pretty much. And so I guess the question I would have is you're dealing with people on projects that aren't like overnight, they take a couple weeks, a couple months, and you're dealing with these pretty big companies at what would be the ideal stage for a company to be at before like approaching you guys to work together? To ensure their success a little bit more.
1: We've dealt with providers and health systems at all stages of progress in the value-based care world and Early on, when we first started doing this work in 2012, 2013, everyone was new at this. This was really uh, taken off. A lot of these contracts were not made available until after the Affordable Care Act was implemented. Now there are many more systems that have tried but have struggled to succeed in value-based care or are looking at needing to go into a more advanced version of these models where they need to share downside risk with somebody, partner with someone who can take some performance risk with them. We see there are opportunities in this work for for almost everyone. And the, the length of time is significant, but the, the payoff can be very significant as well. In the clients that we've been working with last year and this year, last year, our clients received $50 million in shared savings payments from the government. This cycle, we're projecting somewhere north of $70 million. We, we see 86% of our clients receiving those payments this cycle. And that's those are Incomes that have mostly not been budgeted for, for most of those systems to date, that's going to be really helpful for their missions and for the their needs to to maintain and manage staff through the, the difficulties of the pandemic. The investment can be significant, but the rewards can be
0: even more significant. Kind of balance out that risk to reward. Yeah. Awesome. And so you are working with these companies, these healthcare providers on some pretty high level stuff. And so what do you say are some negative consequences to the companies that aren't really prioritizing what you guys do, the value-based care in their business?
1: Well, there are, if you had to divide the the provider's universe up into slices of a pie, you probably have more than a third, less than a half of healthcare providers in some sort of value-based arrangement right now some portion of the half that aren't in have other have reasons that relate to having low volume of the relevant medicare population some uh, high volume of their patients might be in the what's called the medicare advantage program basically the medicare HMO program which has a different set of incentives but then there's a number that are in the middle and there's always a, a frontier of who's considering joining these programs next providers in the middle have oftentimes consciously decided they don't want to pursue this work because they're they're happy they're financially content with the fee for service model. They don't see it the mission alignment there with population health for whatever their whatever those reasons. As a patient and and taxpayer, I would. Would question an organization at this point that hasn't made investments in population health, uh, investments in enhanced primary care, because the the problems in the, the old way of doing things have been extensively documented and well known for a long time now. But a number of systems in healthcare is just really notoriously slow to change. Some of this just takes time. So in some cases, the financial incentives really that have driven some providers in, haven't driven the rest in. You could talk to a hundred different healthcare leaders and get probably 50 different answers as to what their story is for why they haven't gone in yet.
0: Nice. And so it's it's funny that you mentioned that it takes a while for things to happen. And I've been learning that as I start talking to other people within the healthcare industry and start learning like at a deeper level, how slow the industry really is to not even just adopting technology, but really pushing a couple like the narratives out there. And yeah. that's a good trend that I see. Um, but what would what is some like resistance that you face when dealing with companies and trying to get them to buy into like the value that you guys can offer their companies?
1: Yeah, and I'm putting myself in my customer shoes. Everyone in healthcare who's considering what to do next should be skeptical of anyone who's coming to them and saying that they know what to do next, because everyone's life is inherently complicated, and every system is actually different. We learn a lot from these conversations with prospective clients about what they need and what we need to bring. The skepticism that the top the conversations usually revolve at the end of the day around questions of cultural alignment and what the medical staff really wants to focus on at a health system or with a group of physician practices and financial return. And can this work be paid for? Do they believe that our model will work in their environment? And the latter one, very often, it's easy to say that they, they shouldn't be focused on money, they should be focused on doing the right things for their patients. The reality is that they all, all of their jobs depend on them to bringing in sufficient revenue to cover their costs. And our job as people who care about population health and who, who care about patient benefits from these types of programs is to show them that they can do better financially and clinically in these programs than outside of them and that's both a business problem and and something that we spend a lot of time digging in with our clients on of aligning clinical priorities with operational capabilities and financial outcomes. It's also a public policy pro- problem for for CMS and Congress to keep in front of them of have has Medicare has the have payers has public policy put sufficient financial emphasis on population health programs to the detriment of pure fee-for-service programs and if not what can we do about that Uh,
0: okay that's interesting so what sort of advice would you have for companies that are trying to approach this whole population health segment and improve their quality and what they're doing to make sure everything is aligned whether it's the clinical side or the business side
1: I think having a really healthy respect for the complexity of clinical workflows and the difficulty of implementing narrow slice solutions, by which I mean a solution that that just picks off one patient subgroup or uh, one very narrow part of a technology problem, and how hard it is for practices to integrate a whole bunch of different capabilities. We spend a lot of time trying to make sure we aren't asking too much time from our our partner clients around care redesign, around implementing new technologies and just being really, I don't want to say conservative, but just really questioning every part of the model that asks the practice to do something in a way that is going to feel burdensome to them. Making sure that what we are asking them to do is going to generate value for them for their patients and for the program overall. It is really how you, you answer the question of what do they get from working with us and how can we make sure that
0: it, it works for them. Okay. Man, I think that was a very good answer, actually. We're so we're coming up <laughs> towards the end of the interview. We've been talking about a lot of like high level, some complex ideas, but I like to end each interview on a little lighter note. So this these questions have nothing to do with caravan health or your business, but to exercise, I like to call the rapid fire round. So I'll just ask you a couple of questions and you give me whatever answer you come up with. Okay. Sure. All right. So question number one, what is your favorite book of all time?
1: I'm going to go non uh, go fiction here and with with David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas it was turned into a Tom Hanks movie I think which didn't do it justice at all but really weird and uh-huh. interesting
0: usually Tom Hanks movies aren't good man that's uh, <laughs> true uh, number two who's the most influential person in your life or career
1: it might be too much to say my mother but so I'll just set my mother aside but she would be the the perennial champion the most influential person in my career probably would be man tie between Gene Lambrew and Mandy Cohen. Gene Lambrew was the the sort of White House health policy champion during most of the Obama years, really helped me find my footing and helped me navigate uh, the bureaucracies uh, of the federal government. And then Mandy Cohen and others on the leadership team at CMS, Andy Slavitt and Patrick Conway, really helped me focus my career and my energies on leadership and management and take charge of large multifunctional teams uh, at CMS in ways that I hadn't had to in public policy before. So I waffled on that one by giving you like four or five different people, but.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No worries. Shout out to all of them, especially your mom. Number three. What is one goal you want to accomplish this year
1: on a personal level we're about to achieve the biggest goal of getting my children back in school i'm uh, dying for that to happen i'm very excited for them it's uh it's a long time coming for the company i really am hoping and expecting that we are going to break and shatter our all-time performance on uh, shared savings. We talked about this a little bit. We were expecting a, a really dramatic increase in that, and that reflects importance, not just financially for our clients, but reflects the, the value of the work that they've put in over time and the work that they've done with us. We think it's going to go up by 40% or so relative to last year from an already high number. So we are very excited about that, and we'll find out for sure about that
0: in September August September probably. Okay. Yeah. Keep me updated with that. I'm interested to see the progress. But last but not least, what is one piece of advice you would give to your twenty year old self?
1: Man, I, I was a boring twenty-one year old. Um, not gonna lie. I probably would have gotten into economics earlier if I had realized how how useful and informative it was in, in analyzing. The world and how people make decisions i was too much into the the science at the time and really could have benefited from economics work much
0: earlier and there ain't nothing wrong with science man science is just as interesting <laughs> that's right um, but yeah i think that's a perfect way to end today's mm-hmm. episode so tim just want to thank you again for jumping on and sharing what you're working on over at caravan health and how you guys are tackling value-based care but before we go where can people learn more about caravan health where can people connect with you
1: yeah absolutely visit us at caravanhealth.com you can email us at info at caravanhealth.com or you can you can message me on linkedin as well tim can find me on linkedin with that google
0: search awesome and i'll be sure to include all those links in the resources section and whatnot but with that being said that ends today's episode catch you guys on the next one
1: thanks a lot rodney take care